Hello, folks. Dr. Maurice Selby here, medical director, producer, and co-host of Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM and the Health in Harlem podcast. While we strive to bring you the most up-to-date, reliable, evidence-based information to help you live the healthiest life possible, this show does not substitute for an evaluation by a trained and licensed medical professional. It is highly recommended that any advice or recommendations on medications, treatments, nutrition, fitness, preventive services, etc. be implemented under the guidance and supervision of your primary medical provider or appropriate specialist. With that said, we hope that you enjoy and learn from our program, and please be sure to let us know how we can best serve you in future shows. Ladies and gentlemen of the listening audience, my name is Maurice Selby, and you are listening to the one and only Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM New York, the voice of Harlem, and the Health in Harlem podcast featured on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, Amazon Music. We are we're all over the place, ladies and gentlemen, these days, and um, just want to wish everyone in advance a happy and healthy new year. Um, it is definitely that time of year. And, um, you know, with some of the the difficulties we've had this year, there are definitely some reasons to be um, hopeful for this next year coming. And with that said, actually, just going to jump right into our topic because I have Dr. Stephen J. Thomas. He is a the chair of infectious disease at SUNY Upstate University uh, in New York. And he is also the co-author of the paper recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine about the effectiveness of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine and also the coordinating principal investigator for the worldwide worldwide Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine trial. And so with that said, we welcome to the program, Dr. Thomas. Thank you so much. It is, uh, oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you so much for joining us and um, just being willing to really uh, talk about this, because obviously this is, you know, um, among the major developments um, at the end of the year. And as I said, one of those reasons to really, I think, be um, hopeful about uh, 2021 and the future beyond that. Um, and so let's just uh, really get right into this because you are the expert and we've talked about this on Health in Harlem, but um, coming from you, I think it's just um, even more impactful about what this vaccine is, what this intervention is, um, how it works. And most importantly, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to get into uh, the safety of this in- intervention um, and really talk about um, those things. So Dr. Thomas, what is an mRNA vaccine and how is this different from other traditional vaccines? So um, uh, messenger RNA is a, you know, it's like a genetic code. It's like a a communication that your body, um, I mean, we constantly have messenger RNAs in our cells coming and going and they're, they're telling our cells to, 
make proteins or to repair proteins. So we constantly have messenger RNA in our body. And so around 30 years ago, um, some scientists said, geez, we should be able to, you know, we can make messenger RNAs, right? We can create those genetic messages, those codes, and we should be able to use these to help direct our body to make, uh, you know, responses against infectious diseases or responses against cancer. And so, you know, for the past 30 years, scientists have been working with um, messenger RNA. They have used them in the cancer field. They've used them in the vaccine field against infectious diseases. They've done numerous trials in people. So looking at Ebola, influenza, uh, Zika, HIV, uh, you know, over the last 10 years, thousands of people have received messenger RNA-based um, vaccines. And so when, you know, we started seeing this signal in December and January that there was something not going right in uh, in China, and we had all these people who were getting infected and dying of a mysterious respiratory illness, once they discovered that it was a, um, a coronavirus, so SARS-CoV-2, that's the virus that causes COVID, mm -hmm. uh, once, they, once they found out what that was, um, and they published the genetic code, the scientists then started to go to work to uh, build the messenger RNA vaccine candidate. And specifically what it does, if you can imagine, imagine that the SARS-CoV-2 virus is like a, it's like a tennis ball and inside the tennis ball is the genetic material of the virus. And on the surface of the tennis ball, just imagine, you know, dozens and dozens of push pins right? Those push pins are spike proteins, what we call spike proteins. Those spike proteins are what allows that virus to attach to a cell in our body and then get into that cell and then infect that cell and then make baby viruses. And then those baby viruses go out and they infect lots of other cells. And when that happens, that's when people get, get sick and they get pneumonia, or they have kidney problems or heart problems or mm -hmm. problems with their liver. So the thought was, if we can train the immune system to make antibodies and other types of immune responses to that spike protein, we could block that interaction, right? So think of it like a, a key going into a lock. And if you can, uh, if you can attach something to the key that doesn't let it fit in the lock anymore, then you can prevent that, you know, you can prevent that infection. And so what the scientists did was they said, well, we're going to, we're going to take a, that genetic code, that messenger RNA code for the spike protein. We're going to put it in a little fat molecule. We're going to take some salts. We're going to take some sugars. That's going to be the vaccine. And so they inject that into your muscle. It gets into the cell. The body says, Hey, we got to make spike protein because that's what this genetic code is telling us to do. The body starts making spike protein, nothing else. Mm -hmm. It does not make the virus, right? This is, we get that question sometimes is, geez, if I get this vaccine, am I contagious to other people? Yes. <laughs> yes. You're, no, you're not making the virus. You're just only making the spike protein. It's just, that is, it's a very specific instruction. And so the body makes spike protein and then the body says, well, wait a second. That spike protein is foreign. I don't want that spike protein in my body. So it starts generating antibodies and other types of immune responses to that spike protein. And then the next time, let's say you then are 
you know, close to somebody without a mask who has COVID and they cough on you and the virus gets into your lungs, immediately your body's immune system is going to say, oh, wait a second, I've seen this before and I don't want it here. And it will send all those antibodies to that virus and it will prevent, uh, you know, it will prevent that virus from replicating and making you sick. So that that's kind of how a little bit of the history behind messenger RNA vaccines and how this particular one uh, works. And so that is actually very interesting because um, one thing that, you know, in the sort of initial reports about even before the approval of these vaccines, right, this was sort of coming out in the media about these mRNA vaccines as a potential approach, um, in addition to, um, you know, other ways in which uh, vaccines are developed. Um, and it, it, it made it seem like this was very, very novel, right? Um, I'm 36 years old and you're talking about 30 years that this has been in development. So um, not to say that this is, you know, kind of, I guess I'm dating myself, old technology maybe, but um, <laughs> not maybe not as novel as us being on um, a, a uh, squad cast interface, right? Or a Zoom right. call. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, this is one of the messages that when people ask questions about safety, which is a really good question, and it's a question that should be asked, and people should be happy to answer that question. And I am. <laughs> but when people say, well, geez, I'm just concerned. How do they do this so quickly? I mean, this is brand new technology. And I say, no, time out. This is three decades old. The, the, so these scientists were not starting from square one. It's not like on you know, mm -hmm. J January 10th, when they published the, you know, the genetic code for SARS-CoV-2 that scientists were like, you know, if we just did this messenger RNA play, <laughs> you know, it, it's, the, it, you know, they had been thinking about this for a very long time, had been working on it. They had made other vaccines that had been in, like I said, if you add all these trials together, hundreds, if not thousands of people um, mm -hmm. without, you know, without issues. And it's what it's what's called a um, it's called a platform technology, meaning it's a it's a plug and play uh, sort of scenario. So I, the way I think of it, and sometimes describe it, is okay. Um, think of a car, right? And you got your engine and the, the steering wheel, and you got the tires, and you have different passengers in the car, right? So the car goes from point A to point B. Messenger RNA is a platform what changes is the passenger. So they've had Ebola, mm -hmm. they've had influenza, they've had Zika, they've had anti-cancer vaccine. What they did for this was they basically said, okay, our passenger is now SARS-CoV-2. And that's how platform technologies work. And, and platform technologies are good because they're scalable. You know, you can manufacture them very, very quickly. You can plug and play whatever you want very, very quickly. So you can pivot quickly when new threats kind of arise. Um, and this is why groups like CEPI and Bill and Melinda Gates and these other uh, foundations uh, and not-for-profits have really been pushing for platform technologies to be, uh, to be developed. Got it. Um, very, very fascinating. And, um, and thank you for that breakdown because it's very visual and um, definitely helps not only um, the listening audience in, in terms of really understanding this, but even for myself. Um, thank you for that, Dr. Thomas. Now, let's get into um, 
you know, briefly before we really focus on this, the safety of the vaccine, um, you know, myself and uh, my colleague, Dr. Italo Brown, in our initial sort of um, uh, series, in our initial episode um, in this series about the uh, COVID-19 uh, vaccines, we really try to talk about the effectiveness, right? The efficacy of this vaccine and really break it down into concrete terms for individuals. Um, because I remember hearing those initial reports um, in the mainstream media about 95% effectiveness and, um, you know, really just uh, <laughs> at first raised some alarm bells in my mind. Like, what does that mean um, exactly? Um but yeah, how, how can we really look at this in concrete terms about this 95% effectiveness of BNT162B2, um, which, ladies and gentlemen, is the, the actual uh, Pfizer-BioNTech uh, vaccine? Yeah, so, so there, are two, there are two terms that, um, that people have been kind of using interchangeably, but there is a little bit of a nuance to them. So what has been reported is is efficacy. And um, efficacy is basically um, what that means is 95% efficacy means that the vaccine reduced the risk of the vaccine recipient getting COVID by 95% compared to the person that got placebo, right? So placebo in this trial was just salt water, right? It was just saline, basically. Um, What that also means is at the time that we published the paper, 170 COVID cases were documented in the trial, okay? That includes both the vaccine recipients and the placebo recipients. And I'll just mention, you know, I am still blinded. Like, I'm, this was a, what we call a, I mean, it was a, an observer-blinded study. So neither the volunteer nor uh, the investigator, me, for example, in this case, mm-hmm. we have no idea who got what. No matter of fact, until I got my first vaccination, I had never even seen a syringe, because of, wow. yeah, we have to be very, very strict in making sure everyone remains blinded and there's no bias. You know what I mean? Because if somebody, if I know someone got vaccinated and they call me with a sniffle, I might be inclined to say, oh, well, they got vaccinated. This can't be COVID. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, so Correct. we have to remain yep. blinded. So they collected 170 cases of COVID at the time that we, you know, sent the information to the FDA and, and that time we published the paper. Only eight of those cases were in the vaccine group, and 162 of those cases were in the placebo group. So the vaccine reduced the risk of COVID by 95% in the vaccine group compared to placebo. So that's efficacy. Efficacy is a term that is usually reserved for highly controlled conditions like a clinical trial, right? Like, like what we're talking about. Effectiveness is how efficacy translates to real world scenarios, right? Like what's going on now when they roll out the vaccine to hospitals and and clinics and when people, you know, uh, people start getting vaccinated in the community, you know, older people, people with medical problems, first responders, teachers eventually, you know. So effectiveness is something that gets kind of measured over outside of the context of a clinical trial because, um, they're not necessarily the same thing because when you start adding in the particulars of life and living, yes. right, and you know, and, and it's not as controlled as a trial, um, that that's that's uh, effectiveness. And the you know the the companies 
once they get an emergency use authorization, um, which is what allows them to distribute the vaccine outside of trials, they have a lot of requirements that they have to meet um, to the FDA. And one of those requirements is there are a lot of, um, you know, they have to assess effectiveness. They have to continue to monitor safety. They have to continue to monitor the benefit of, of uh, the vaccine. And if they don't do it, they risk losing, you know, their authorization to, um, to distribute. So, so that's kind of how I think about efficacy and effectiveness. Got it. Okay. And um, as far as the, the trials itself, right. When um, sort of we were watching these individuals that received both the experimental um, group or actually the vaccine itself and the placebo groups um, as far as their behaviors, right. These were people that were carrying on, I'm guessing as they had prior to receiving those interventions, right. Whether they were wearing masks or sort of, um, you know, practicing social distancing, there was no difference in those, those groups in that regard. Yeah. So we, we tried to recruit four specific groups of people into our trial. Number one, we tried to recruit people who were at risk of COVID. So um, they were doing jobs uh, or they were in situations that placed them at risk of infection. Um, so for example, we, it might be a healthcare provider. It might be a nurse, a doctor. It could be the environmental services person. It could be the food services person who all work in a hospital. Um, so we tried to enroll people who are at risk. If you were somebody, you know, if you were, let's say you were, uh, just for example, a journalist who was only working from home and lived by yourself, we would not enroll you in the trial because you're not at risk compared to the rest of the population. So that was the first group. The second group that we enrolled were, if someone got infected, did they have a high risk of a bad outcome, right? So are these people that were older, because we enrolled people up to 85 years of age. So people who were older, people who had medical problems that placed them at risk, like, you know, diabetes or heart disease or uh, um, uh, things like uh, COPD or kidney disease, those folks. The third group, we really tried hard to recruit African-Americans, and we really tried hard to recruit um, people that were um, uh, in uh, uh, Hispanic or Latinx populations. And the reason we tried to recruit those two populations is that those two populations were um, experiencing a disproportionate burden of COVID compared to the rest of the population, right? So those people were more likely to become infected, more likely to have severe disease, end up in the hospital, and more likely um, to die from COVID. And so this vaccine is, you know, they're a high risk group. We want to, we are making this vaccine in part for those groups because those groups are at higher, you know, highest risk. So, so those were the four groups that we tried to, uh, that we tried very hard um, to recruit. Got it. Uh, and, in, and in terms of, um, you know, when we look at the, so aside from looking at the effect, the efficacy and effectiveness of this vaccine, you know, one of the the major themes that comes up right now um, in terms of whether this is an intervention that, that individuals are willing to accept is the safety of this intervention. Mm -hmm. um, and I know we've talked about, you know, sort of the rapidity with which it was developed, um, 
you know, we're talking in what, eight to nine months um, when previous vaccines, it, it has taken, you know, close to decades to uh, develop um, and distribute. Um, let's get into the really the, the safety, right, in the development of this vaccine and, and really how has this been weighed um, against looking at, the, at its effectiveness in dealing with the SARS-CoV-2 uh, pandemic? Right. Yeah, so I, I think of four, four things that allowed this vaccine development effort to go, you know, much faster than previous efforts. And so kind of historically, it's taken about 10 years and over a billion dollars to make uh, to make a vaccine, to go from concept to something that's approved by the FDA on a shelf. Um, it's taken a long time for lots of different reasons. Uh, I think, you know, in the last, you know, five or 10 years, though, people have basically, you know, people in the field have said it should not take that long and it doesn't have to take that long. Um, so then the timeline started to speed up. You know, the Ebola vaccine was uh, licensed within five years, that, um, you know, by Merck. Um but now you got this this one, which is about a year, right? Um, so four things that I look at, wh- why, why was that possible? Number one, as we've already talked about, they had been working on the technology for 30 years already. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of back work, number one. Number two, you know, one of the major reasons that um, it takes a long time is because it is a high-risk endeavor financially. So it, as I mentioned, it takes, it costs well over a billion dollars to make a vaccine. And so what companies want to do is they want to try to mitigate the financial risk of developing something that has a high risk of failure, right? And so they do things very sequentially, very slowly, very pragmatically, and they, you know, have these milestones. They say, okay, we've reached the first milestone is the evidence there to support continuing before we write a check <laughs> to continue, right? And so it just, it takes a long time. Well, with this, because, you know, Pfizer on their own and the other companies through Operation Warp Speed, they basically have said, listen, it's a pandemic. Uh, it, it, you know, we have to take the financial risk. And so they have basically written checks um, for hundreds of millions of dollars to do things in parallel um, that normally they would do sequentially. Now, I would stress, this is like manufacturing risk. This is not safety risk. Like, you know, th- there are no safety risks that they're taking. They're taking financial and and uh, uh, some technical kind of manufacturing risks, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the second thing. Um, the third thing is that the um, sometimes, you know, in the past, the FDA has taken a really long time to review this information and to make judgments on the information. You know, at one point it took up to two years for them to just review your file and say either, yeah, it's good or no, it's not good. Um, Because of this pandemic, and this is similar to what they did in Zika and similar to what they did with Ebola, it is a constant dialogue back and forth, back and forth, question, answer, discussion, question, answer, discussion. Here's the information you asked for. Okay, here's our thoughts on this information. And so uh, it's been a very, very close and productive relationship which again has saved a lot of time. The fourth thing, which is unfortunate, but um, you know, whenever you're trying to figure out whether a vaccine has some clinical benefit, you basically take, let's say it's a, you're making a vaccine against disease X. You need to take two groups of people that are at equal risk of getting disease X 
One of them gets the vaccine, one of them gets the placebo, and then you follow them and you see who gets infected and who doesn't. Now, sometimes if disease X does not occur with great frequency, it can take years to collect enough cases, right? Now, unfortunately, with this uh, pandemic and with the epidemic within the United States, um, there were so many infections and so many people getting infected, um, you know, even though we gave people the knowledge of how to protect themselves, right? Wear masks, physical distance, wash hands, uh, you know, don't gather. We still had people getting infected at a very high rate. Um, and so, it, you know, they reached the number of cases that they needed to make a determination, um, you know, very, very quickly. So those were the four things that, in my opinion, uh, uh, were the major contributors to the to the speed with which uh, they were able uh, they were able to uh, develop this vaccine. Got it. And and so essentially, what you're saying is that this vaccine, right, from um, its initial right when we saw the sequencing of the genome of this virus um, to application of this mRNA um, technology and the development of this vaccine, we really none of the steps that we that we traditionally see with the development of vaccines none of those things were bypassed no i mean the level of um the level of so the the requirements to demonstrate safety were the same the metrics the the things that were measured everything was absolutely the same and i've been you know developing vaccines for you know 20 something years which is longer than many but still I'm junior to a lot of the folks I was working with. Um, and, and there was really nothing different in terms of what we measured in terms of safety, in terms of, you know, the thresholds for calling something safe or unsafe. The, the FDA used the same measures that they've always, you know, that they've, uh, uh, that they've always, that they've always used. There were no corners and, and, you know, we, there are so many different groups that are, outside of the company that are outside of the government that are outside of you know the political administration who were responsible for providing oversight um that there there was a very robust system of uh, you know checks and balances i mean the fda has two advisory committees just within the fda that are external that advise them and then you have ethical review committees and you have an independent data safety monitoring board. And there's just so many different groups that are monitoring this thing um, to ensure that, you know, it's objective, that there's no bias, that there's no, you know, concerning safety signals. And, and again, it's important, uh, 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 you know, that there are these objective disinterested parties and it's important that the, the processes that the FDA use are transparent and, uh, visible and open to the public, which, which they are. Yes. Yes, indeed. Um, and so let's pivot a little bit and, and actually talk about these, uh, safety metrics, um, and what they are, what is it that is being tracked? Um, we talk about looking at the safety profile of an intervention, um, such as, such as this one. Okay. So, um, so the first thing I would say is that, you know, we, we initially enrolled people 18 to 85 years of age. Um, and now we're enrolling people, uh, 
12 years uh, of age up to up to uh, 15 years of age. Uh, and we enrolled people with stable medical problems. Um, and so, for example, uh, and that included people with stable HIV, people with stable malignancies, um, diabetes, leukemia, lymphoma, um, a peripheral vascular disease, kidney disease. So, uh, you know, thousands of people who had pre-existing medical problems were enrolled because, again, <laughs> they are the people that are at highest risk from COVID. And so those are the people that we want to protect. So that's the first thing I would say. I'm going to comment specifically on the allergy issue because I know that comes up a, a, a lot, oh, right? Yes, it yeah. does. Yes, it does. <laughs> so, yeah. So we we did not enroll people who had a known allergy to any component of the vaccine. And we did not enroll people that had had known life-threatening allergic reactions to other vaccines. But that was basically it. So we enrolled lots of people who had uh, plant allergies or animal allergies or bee stings. We enrolled, you know, people that had antibiotic allergies because there's no antibiotics in these vaccines. We enrolled people who carry EpiPens, you know, for lots of mm -hmm. different, different reasons, right? Um, so we did not, you know, so this was a very diverse group of people that had a diverse range of of medical problems, and they were allowed to be in the study if those medical problems were were uh, stable, meaning you're being treated by a doctor, you're taking your medication, and you're doing mm -hmm. fine, for example. So then we look at two different things. Safety is kind of broken down into two different buckets. Uh, one is we looked at sort of what we call local reactions. So that is a reaction where they actually put the needle into your muscle and, and you know, like a normal shot. And we look for pain, redness, swelling, discomfort where at the injection site. And then we look at systemic reactions. So more generalized reactions like fever and chills and nausea, vomiting, uh, fatigue or, or headache or um, muscle aches. So then we look at systemic reactions and we had a subgroup of people that, you know, a couple thousand people, I think 8,000 people that we did very intensive investigations in the seven days after their vaccinations. And um, the way we did that is everyone had an electronic diary. So it was on their smartphone. And so every single day they would receive a ping that says, Hey, fill out your diary. How are you feeling today? Do you have headache? Yes or no. Do you have muscle aches? Yes or no. And when people would check yes to any of these things, we would get an email and then we would contact those people and we would evaluate them. And that was being done all over the world because you had you know thousands of people doing this. And that is how the safety database was collected. And so, and what we found out was that, um, in terms of the local reactions, so uh, you had people that experienced mild to moderate pain. Mild to moderate pain, what that means is, let's just take the highest level, moderate pain. Moderate pain means, okay, my arm hurts, it's interfering a little bit with what I have to do, but I'm still able to work, go to school, take care of my family, do what I need to do. It's not preventing me from doing anything, but it's a little bit, it's interfering Maybe I'll take some Tylenol. Maybe I'll take some Motrin, something like that. Mm -hmm. But, but it's it. We had very, very few severe, um, severe reactions. It was mild to moderate. Um, the second thing we we noted was that the pain, if they were going to have pain, 
it came on quickly, usually within 36 hours of being vaccinated. And then once it started, it went away quickly, usually within 24 to 36 hours of occurring. So if you were going to have that symptom, came quickly, left quickly. Um, the third thing we noticed was that the older people seem to have, so people more than 55 years of age, they seem to have less reactions compared to the younger people. And that's an interesting, that's an interesting observation. It, there's some <laughs> immunology that might be at play, or it might just be that the older folks don't com- complain as much about, <laughs> about uh, being uncomfortable. I don't know. I don't uh, know. Us millenni- millennials, man. Oh boy. <laughs> Very vocal about yeah. our, our bodies. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not 55 yet, but I'm, I'm staring right at it. So I don't know which group I'm kind of on the cusp, I guess I'm in the middle of that. Um, uh, and then we, we really did not see any difference between the different races or ethnic groups. So, uh, you know, whites or African-Americans, Hispanic or Latinx, Asians, it was all kind of, kind of the same. And then on the systemic side, the most common symptoms we saw were, um, headache, and fatigue. And that, again, uh, the volunteers said it's mild to moderate. So I'm not making that assessment. They're making the assessment, right? So I'm not telling somebody, oh, that seems like it's moderate. No, they're saying it was mild to moderate. And once again, it came quickly. It left quickly. It was less in the older folks compared to the younger folks. It was the same across races or ethnicities. And it seemed that um, in people that had uh, that were going to have reactions, uh, they had them more frequently after the second dose compared to uh, compared to the first dose. Now, uh, an interesting another interesting concept is that remember we had a placebo group, right? So we we had a group of people that had salt water. Now, no one knows who got what, right? And those people were also filling out diary cards, right? So when we look at something like headache, for example, and I'll just look at the people. 16 to 55 years of age after they got their second dose, right? Because reactions were greater after the second dose compared to, um, you know, compared to the first dose. So if you just look at headache, so 52% of people who got the vaccine, so five out of 10 people reported that they had a headache, but 24% of people, (laughs) so two out of 10 people who got placebo said that they had a headache. Yes, I did see that. (laughs) Right. And if you look at, um, Fatigue, which is the other common, you know, uh, 59% of people who got the vaccine said that they had a mild to moderate headache after vaccination, but 23% of people who got water said that they had, had, and we see this all the time. I mean, this is why we do placebo controlled trials, right? Because it's just another way to reduce bias and to increase, you know, the quality of the quality of the information and to just give people some perspective on, you know, uh, uh, on, on the vaccine and, and, and its safety. So, so that's how we measure safety, local reactions, systemic reactions, um, a group of, you know, it's about 8,000 people and we compare the vaccine to placebo. No one knows who got what. And uh, we let the volunteers tell us um, the severity. Yes. Yes. And uh, I can, I can testify to, you know, some of those uh, effects having received the vaccine, both the local and systemic effects. And oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. I definitely felt them. Um, the local wasn't that bad, you know, uh, it, in comparison to some of my colleagues and, and what I've sort of read um, about individuals having, you know, significant 
discomfort um, at the injection site. I, it was mostly like the, I definitely had body aches, a um, little bit of a headache and fatigue, but it only lasted about a day. And um, I don't know if you can comment on this, uh, Dr. Thomas, but there was, and this was amongst myself and my colleagues, we were just sort of um, thinking about, you know, if you had had COVID prior, do you have more of these reactions or is there any data to support that um, at all? Because I actually had uh, COVID um, during that that outbreak in New York City, yeah. um, that initial wave. Right. Um, and so I definitely, you know, had those those um, side effects. And I was wondering if that was maybe because I had already had gone through the infection itself. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, my my personal experience, I did not have anything, but that's like I said, Good. <laughs> I, I, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm 14 years older than you, Maurice. So that's probably, got okay. Got it. Got it. <laughs> that's probably why. Um, yeah, no, they, you know, so what we did was when we did not enroll anybody that had been previously diagnosed with COVID or who had a positive antibody test. So, yeah. So we would ask people, have you ever had COVID? And they would say, no. And we'd say, have you ever had an antibody test? And was it positive? And if they said no, then we would consider them for enrollment. Mm-hmm. But on each of the two vaccination days, right, and they're three weeks apart, we took a nasal swab and we took a b- blood sample. And once all this information came in, um, the statisticians were able to look at people who actually had been infected in the past but didn't know it, mm-hmm. or people that had had an infection, a positive PCR, you know, a nasal swab at the time they were vaccinated. And it's over 1,700 people had been enrolled in the trial. And we did not see any difference in safety, and we did not see any difference in efficacy uh, among people who had either been, uh, uh, people who had been infected before and then were vaccinated. Got it. Got it. So maybe this was in my head. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. But, you know, I think one thing that we really have to get out there, right, is, is that, ladies and gentlemen, there will be individuals that have um, side effects. And this is something that we've seen, not just with um, these these new um, vaccines, but this is something that historically we've seen with vaccination and really any intervention or medication in medicine. There are always side effects. Um and that we just have to be knowledgeable of um, and that, you know, with getting the intervention, we are just going to have. Uh, but I will say that, uh, you know, within 24 hours, I was, you know, back to normal, um, able to resume my my three and five mile runs a day and go to work and stuff and, and be with family. Um, but it's something that I definitely experienced when getting the vaccine. Um, so as we pivot, what are some of the and, and thank you for breaking that down as far as the, the local and systemic um, uh, effects or side effects um, that we saw in the trials. One of the biggest concerns, I think, are the long term. And this is actually verbatim, right, from family and friends that I've spoken to. Um, one of their major concerns when making this decision about um, accepting this intervention or not, they are concerned about the long term, potential long term um, effects of the vaccine outside of its, you know, um, effectiveness in terms of preventing, uh, COVID-19. They are worried about, you know, uh, potential immunologic, um, effects, um, long-term, uh, disability or things that could 
sort of um, present much later after the vaccine has been administered. And so I just wanted to know if, if there's any idea or data or anything that you can offer as, as far as what those potential effects are and um, how can we sort of um, look at the safety of this vaccine right now in that context? So, you know, some people have, have said, well, geez, messenger RNA, genetic material, um, I'm concerned, you know, how, how do I know this is not going to incorporate into my, mm. my DNA? How do I know that this is not going to, uh, you know, somehow uh, get mixed up into, you know, uh, my individual uh, genetic makeup? So, you know, the first thing I would say is that, again, our body is constantly constantly has different messenger RNA codes all, you know, constantly going through our cells and, and through our bodies. This is not something unique um, with this vaccine, uh, number one. Uh, number two, the messenger RNA does not go into, you know, if you think of a, you know, think of a, your cell uh, within the, think of it like an egg, right? And, and in the white part of the egg is what we call the cytoplasm and the, the yellow part of the yolk that's the nucleus of the cell. And inside the nucleus is where our DNA is. This vaccine, the messenger RNA only stays in the cytoplasm. It only stays in the white part of the egg. It never even gets into the nucleus. So there really is no opportunity for the, this, you know, kind of genetic combination that people are kind or of thinking mixing about. In. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The other thing is that the, the messenger RNA is around for less than a day. It, it, it comes and goes very quickly. It does not need to be there long to do what it needs uh, to do what it needs to do. So that's one thing that, you know, uh, I've heard about. Uh, the other thing that we hear about a lot, and I've already, I mean, what time is it? Even just this morning, I've already gotten a couple of questions because we're vaccinating healthcare workers up here mm -hmm. uh, about fertility and about, you know, there is a lot of stuff out there on social media um, about uh, fertility and spike proteins going after placentas and all this other stuff. There is no information. There is no data. There is no evidence that I am aware of. And I've looked into this to support that that is an actual thing <laughs> that, that, that that's even, that that is even um, uh, uh, possible. You know, the, the genetic similarities between the spike protein and the placenta are, so, so dissimilar. It's not even plausible that I'm aware of, uh, uh, to, yeah, I'm just not aware of it. That's number one. No, you know, the other thing is there've been millions of women who have been infected with COVID. So they've been exposed yeah. to the full virus. They've been exposed to the spike protein. They've been exposed to the, you know, all the other components of the virus and, and infertility is not something, uh, you know, that we've heard about. So that's another thing that, you know, people have, have mentioned, but in terms of the long-term, um, you know, the long-term uh, effects. So the FDA basically said, listen, we don't want to see any application for an emergency use authorization until you have at least two months worth of data. And the reason they chose two months is because if you look at the databases that we have in this country to measure vaccine safety, right. Or, um, people that have had bad outcomes from vaccines um, because it does happen. And, you know, I mean, one in a million people have yes. allergic reactions to vaccines. It's just normal um, sort of thing. Um, the vast, vast majority of reactions, if they're going to happen, 
occur within six weeks. So the FDA added two more weeks and said, you have to give us at least eight weeks of safety data. The other thing is that for the FDA, you know, one of the requirements that you have if you get an emergency use authorization is that you have to pursue, you have to continue to pursue a full license. If you stop pursuing a full license, they will revoke your emergency use authorization. And to, to get a full license, typically, you can't have any less than six months worth of safety data, which is why these trials are designed. These are two-year trials. So we're going to follow all these people um, you know, for two years and assess the safety and assess the ability over the long term to protect people from, from COVID. So those are some of my initial thoughts on kind of long-term safety. Got it. So essentially, you know, the whole I am legend, like I'm not going to turn into a zombie. You know, Will Smith <laughs> is not going to have to, <laughs> Will Smith is not going to have to uh, save, save the planet um, again. <laughs> well, I, I laugh at that because, uh, uh, you know, I don't know if you know this, but I, I was in the army for 20 years. So I was an army, oh, okay. I, I was an army virologist for 20 years. So, Got it. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that is, I think Will, that's funny. That is hysterical. <laughs> Will Smith is a Will Smith is a much more attractive army virologist. Than <laughs> <laughs> people will get more uh, more enthused uh, by him than me, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, Doctor Thomas, um, what would you say is is probably the most important thing we think about this vaccine, um, and, and really for individuals out there that are contemplating this. You know, as we speak, whether this is something that they um, are going to accept or not, um, and really, right, giving them the information, um, especially with what you mentioned, a lot of the stuff that we're seeing out there, um, the disinformation that's out there, the false information. How would you sort of, um, uh, what tips do you have for people to go out and find information? For themselves, because this is the information age, right? All of the technology is out there. You can get this stuff on your smartphone. So, how can people, in a in a smart way, in a safe way, get information about these vaccines? So, the the first thing that I would say is that you know the vaccine will not work unless people take it, right? So, vaccines do not save lives. Vaccination is what saves lives. Right. And so you could have a, a perfect vaccine, but if no one takes it, it's not going to work. So that's number one. Number two, you know, based on very, very large trials. So you got two, so you got Pfizer, you got Moderna. They both have messenger RNA vaccines. They're very similar. They did two completely independent trials, almost 70,000 people, right? Mm. In these trials, over 200 sites around the world. The data is very, very similar. So it's almost like they have kind of cross-validated one another. So we know that these vaccines are safe and we know that they will protect people from COVID. The third thing I would say is that everybody who's listening, (laughs) you are worth knowing the truth. (laughs) You are worth getting accurate information so that you can make a personal decision of what's best for you and what's best for your family. And so you should, you should ask questions and you should go to sources of information that are 
objective and that are interested in telling you what the truth is because you know there's a lot of noise out there on both sides yeah. right uh, from on both, yeah on both extremes right there's a lot of information and so um you know you should go to multiple sites that are just interested in informing you uh so like the cdc is a disinterested party the fda is a disinterested party their jobs are to protect the american uh you know the american public um and there are other sources of information that, uh, you know, the World Health Organization, uh, you know, these are organizations that are objective, they're beyond reproach, they cannot be influenced, and and you should get information from there. You should not go to social media. You should not go to your cousin. You should not go to, uh, uh, you know, all these other um, uh, sources of information where people may or may not, but they may have an agenda because there are groups out there that have an agenda. I'm not even telling you to listen to me, but I'm I'm saying go out there because you're worth it. Go out there and get objective, accurate information so you can make uh, uh, a choice, right? Like we were talking about before we went on air. That's what, you know, that's what we're trying to do today. And that's what I would really encourage um, uh, uh, people to do. Yes, indeed. And thank you for that, um, Dr. Thomas. And we, we say the same thing on health in Harlem, ladies and gentlemen. Um, you know, as far as just getting this information out there, that is really the only goal that we have on this program. And I always said it that if you ever heard an ad um, on this program, especially the podcast, <laughs> let me know about it, because that is the reason why we do not have those affiliations. We do not accept ads. Um, on the program. And, uh, you know, WHCR is an independent community radio station. It is not a commercial station. And that's that's part of the reason is so that we can really um, just do our best in getting information out there so that you can make informed decisions, right? And, and, and decisions based on real information, real data. Um, that that's, that's really the key. And um, Dr. Thomas, I really just want to thank you very much for joining us um, and ladies and gentlemen, he's actually um, on clinical service right now. So he's going to go probably go see some patients and stuff. And so we really uh, thank you for taking this time. And also of note, it is uh, New Year's Eve. And so I know <laughs> it is some other things. Yeah, some other things going on. So we really, as he said, uh, appreciate you uh, taking the time out to, to just get this information out there. And um, lastly, I just want to ask before we go, Dr. Thomas, is uh, what would you say is the most important message? Um, our, our audience should take home from this discussion? Uh, well, you know, as a, as a physician and a scientist, I am by nature an optimist and I am by nature a hopeful person. <laughs> <laughs> and I, um, I really think that, um, you know, I, I think that these vaccines can be a very powerful tool if people are willing uh, to take them. And I think that they can uh, uh, save, uh, save a lot of lives. And I'm, I am, Glad to see 2020 go and see it yes. in, the, in the rearview mirror. And so I am, uh, I embracing, I am embracing um, hope for 2021. And uh, you know, if enough of us are willing to get vaccinated and wear masks and physically distance um, by the summer, we could be in a much different spot than we are now. So, so my message is: uh, be hopeful, people, and um, get informed, and you know, make good decisions. Yes. Thank you very much, Dr. Thomas. 
And uh, ladies and gentlemen, we also thank you for tuning into Health in Harlem. Um, we also want to wish you a very happy, healthy, and prosperous new year. Also, I want to give a shout out to the rest of the Health in Harlem team uh, out there. Giorgio Reed, Anastasia, um, Ashley, Michael, um, Mia, Ben Ferry. I just want to shout you all out um, just for working week to week to bring the, the, the show to our listening audience um, each and every week. So shout out to you all. Hopefully you had a, a very happy holiday. And as we said, we wish you a very happy new year. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, this show is dedicated to the memory of Miss Gloria Thomas. Um, and uh, one thing, ladies and gentlemen, we hope that this is a dialogue between us. We do not just want to be talking heads. And so your comments, your feedback, um, it is very uh, appreciated. We will say that we thank you in advance for that because it just helps us in bringing the best information possible to you. So definitely hit us up on the uh, comments. Um, check out our social media page on Facebook and let us know what you're thinking and, and you know what you would like to learn uh, uh, from the show. And with that said, ladies and gentlemen, Harlem, take care of yourself. Thank you.